good to be here today, to be with you, to uh, speak on God's Word. <clears throat> My wife and I came to uh, fellowship to uh, join with you starting the second week in July last year. So we've been here 11 point one month, 11 months, and we uh, actually haven't felt quite totally, completely a part of fellowship. And uh, not until last week. But last week, something happened where we really feel qualified to be members here. What was it? Here it is. <laughs> that is me on a 45 caliber pistol and my wife on a 9 millimeter. Having grown up on the streets of Washington, D.C., I never shot anything in my life. Couldn't hit the side of a barn. So last week we had friends that called and said, hey, we'd like to come up to your property, bring our three boys. And so we said, yeah, come on up, bring your stuff. Each of their boys has bow and arrows, you know, and stuff like that, metal detectors. And then they brought the guns out. And uh, he brought out this 45. He says, I want you to shoot it. And I said, no, you don't. I don't want to shoot it. Uh, I don't bother with that stuff. He said, I've got, and he pulled out hundreds of rounds of 45 that cartridges that he had bought from Russia. He says, you can't use these in a firing range. They got the wrong kind of point on them. He said, so I want to get rid of them. So I think I must have shot 50 rounds or more. It was fun. <laughs> so that is the introduction to today's subject, which is murder. <clears throat> <clears throat> We've been talking about the Ten Commandments. They argue that since God is sovereign and rules over his earth for good, he has ten statements that form the basis for all of life. And if you want to live a life that is good, that has his blessing, you need to pay attention to these ten statements. The first five commandments deal with our relationship with God and his representatives on earth, our parents. Those five statements are, number one, make God first in your life. Number two, don't worship anybody or anything else. Number three, protect his name above all names. Number four, save a day in the week to spend with him. And number five, honor and obey your parents. And then the next five commandments deal with people around us, our relationship with others. And God commands, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie or speak falsely, and don't covet what the Joneses have. You can summarize those ten statements in two statements. Jesus did this in the New Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. That's the first five. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the next five. And as you go through these five, these Ten Commandments, you notice the fact that they are talking about values. They're talking about things that God wants us to appreciate, that God wants us to hold high because of their importance. So he's saying in these Ten Commandments that your life is not really going to be worth living in a total sense until, A, you learn to value God above everything else in your life. Until, two, you learn to value my unseen nature. Three, you learn to value my name. Four, you learn to value spending a day in your life hanging out with me. Five, you learn to value your parents. And then the next five say, you need to learn to value life. Don't murder. You need to learn to value marriage. Don't commit adultery. You need to learn to value private property. Don't steal. You need to learn to value language 
and truth. You need to learn to value what you have and not covet what other people have. So here are 10 statements that God made that say here, this is the basis of profitable living. This should be the foundation of every person's life. This should be the foundation of society's life. Today we're on number six. Don't murder. The Hebrew consists of two words. No murdering. No unlawful killing. Actually, commandments 6, 7, and 8 are all two-word commandments. No murder, no adultery, no theft. So why do we have to talk about murder? Everyone here is against it, aren't they? You would expect that everybody's against murder. Why is such a message necessary? You don't think there's anyone for it. You're not worried that there's somebody for it or that there's somebody practicing it, do you? Yeah. There's the danger that some of, some of you are practicing your form of pre-murder or murder. And this commandment's talking about that. So let me address this commandment in five statements. Number one, murder involves more than a death. Murder involves more than a death. Just because someone dies at the hands of another does not mean it's murder. The Old Testament contains a number of exclusions, exceptions, things that are not considered murder. Let me list a couple of them. Number one, accidental death. Is it murder when somebody you don't know dies in a collision with your car? No. Hunting, hunting accidents kill people. My uncle was killed by his brother, of all things, in a hunting accident. There is such thing as involuntary manslaughter. Now, there may be penalty for negligence, but it's not necessarily considered murder. Number two, government-directed lethal force. There is justifiable war. God intends nations to protect themselves. God himself at various times directed his people into the field of battle, even commanding his people to kill the Canaanites. These things are not in the class of murder. Those who kill in a just war are not murderers. Now, it is possible for those who engage in war to again get involved in brutality and atrocities. That would be in the class of murder. There's police action that kills people. I wouldn't doubt that there are people in this congregation who have killed others in military or law enforcement or a guard or some official capacity representing the will of the government. Is that murder? No. Killing is not necessarily murder. Paul says in Romans 13, he makes this statement in Romans 13 and says, he doesn't carry the sword in vain. Meaning he carries that 45 to use it. And God wants him to use it. That's why you need to be careful. Government has the right, God-given right, to use lethal force both in the administration of justice and the protection of our land. And I think we ought to praise God for our military and law enforcement people because there are strangers out there who want to do us harm. I'll take an amen on that. <clears throat> that was weak. <laughs> do you thank God for our military? <clears throat> you know, people who really put their lives on the line for our benefit. And law enforcement putting their lives on the line for our benefit. We've got to praise God for them. Number three, there's self-defense. When, when someone kills his attacker, he's not classed as a murderer. Look at this interesting, these interesting verses. This is Exodus 22. Exodus 22, beginning in verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep 
and kills or sells, sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an, a, for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If, he's, if he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. The point here is that a thief is responsible for the consequences of his act. And if he tries to enter a sheep pen at night and steal, and the guard, in fear of his own safety perhaps, kills the guy, the guard's not guilty of homicide. But if the sun has risen on him, what does that mean? Well, it may refer to committing a robbery in daylight, but I don't think so. I think it refers to a later period of time. The theft occurred at night, but after the sun arose, the owner decided to go after the thief because he realized who it was. And he finds him, rescues his sheep by killing the thief. In that case, the owner is guilty of murder. By law, the owner was due four sheep for one stolen. But that law did not give permission to the owner to kill the thief. Notice the balance here. God says that if someone, if someone steals your sheep, you owe, you receive back 400%. That's the law. But at the same time, God warns you from taking the life of the, of the thief. Even though he's a thief, God says his life is still valuable. So self-defense could take a life, and that would not be murder. And then fourthly, something happens. Something happens, and somebody dies. This is Exodus 21, verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Do you see the difference? He did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand. What does that mean? I don't know. But it's different than verse 14. If a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning. So if something happens and somebody dies and you didn't, Plot it, do it with raw, with that evil motive, God says, I'll provide a city for you to run for refuge. And so God set up, in his mercy, set up six cities throughout the nation. These are all cities where the Levites lived. You know, the Levites were one tribe that didn't possess any property. When Joshua conquered the promised land, he divided the land up for every tribe except for the Levites. They didn't get any property. What they got were cities, 48 cities in the land. And out of those 48, God chose six and says these will be called cities of refuge. So that if somebody murders, kills, they can run to one of those cities. They can appear at the gate and ask the elders for Asylum in the city, the elder's responsibility is to protect them until they get a fair trial to decide what happened. That was the purpose of the cities. So notice the difference. How do you know if someone is guilty of murder? Verse 13, he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand. So you're telling me that someone is going to figure out what his motive is? Yes. The difference between killing and murder is motive. 
motive. Did you all hear about the sheriff's deputy this week, this past week? I think the event happened on the 22nd of May. Sheriff's deputy got in this this mix-up with somebody, I think at a bar late at night, went home, got his badge, got his service revolver, and went back and killed the guy. He's now being charged with first-degree murder. Why? He went home and got his stuff. You know, he planned this. He intended this. There was a motive here. First-degree murder. Murder involves motive. So the second statement I'd like to make is that murder has to include an evil motive. Murder has to include an evil motive. Webster's New College, New World College Dictionary defines murder as the unlawful and malicious or premeditated killing of one human being by another. You see motive there? Unlawful, malicious, or premeditated killing of one human being by another. Murder's talking about violence against an individual out of hatred, out of anger, out of malice, out of deceit, or for personal gain. And it includes any kind of situation or any method that might result in the death of someone, even if the person doing the violence didn't intend it. So here are two of the motives that are evil. Here are two of the motives that start the process of murder. Motive number one, the murderer doesn't value life. The murderer doesn't value life. Back in Genesis chapter 9, God said to Noah, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Do you see in these verses, I will require three times? Three times. I will require. This is God saying there is something about human life and I am taking record. Human life is extremely important. God never made this statement about animals. He doesn't say taking record about animals. It's human life. Because humans are the most perfect manifestation of the person of God in the world. They bear his image. We are made in the image of God. A human being is God's ultimate creation. A human being is far beyond millions of galaxies in terms of displaying the glory of God. And that life that he is given, whether that is the life of a drunkard in the gutter or that life of a CEO banker, that life is precious. God has a purpose for every life. He created every person. He gave every person life. And to think that you have the ability and power to take it, to eliminate it, is an attack on God. The way we treat life is a reflection on how we view God as its creator. Is life awesome or not? The murderer says, that life is a mistake. It's worthless. Second evil motive is that a murderer doesn't value God. Doesn't value God. Only God decides how long a person lives. 
God is the one who gives life and who takes life. Hebrews chapter 9, God says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. Job chapter 14, Job says, Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, God, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. He's saying God's the one who's given a, a definite, determined number of days to every individual. So when another individual takes it upon himself to end the life of someone, that person's making himself God. Assuming his position, assuming his power, stepping into an area where he has no business. This started with the first murderer. Do you remember Cain and Abel? Genesis chapter 4, Cain killed Abel. Why? He didn't like his righteousness. He didn't like the fact that this guy loved God. Abel brings his offering in, God accepts it. Cain brings his offering in, God rejects it. John says in his first epistle, John 3, 12, Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. God even warned Cain. God said to Cain, you know, you got a bad attitude here, brother. This is Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain is angry because God's rejected his offering. But God shows him it's not the rejection that's the problem. The problem is Cain's heart. Sin is crouching at his door. God says, you've got to deal with that. Whatever's crouching at your door is going to leap into your life. You rule over it, or it's going to take over. Did he listen? Tragically, no. He thought his problem was able. It's a classic attitude of a murderer. He thinks the problem is somebody else. He thinks if he eliminates somebody else's life, he willingly overlooks his own heart problem. Did you hear the statement this week of the Boston Marathon murderer? The guy that's the one that's left, his brother was killed, he's in the hospital. His mother reported, this is according to his mother, he is angry over the way he is being mistreated and misunderstood. Is that not incredible? Here's a man who thinks the problem is out there. The problem is himself. Angry with everybody out there. Angry with himself? Oh, no. The attitude of a murderer. So that leads me to statement number three, which I'm going to skip. Murder pollutes the culture. I'll come back to that sometime, maybe when I get back, whatever that is. <clears throat> Let me jump to number four, statement number four. Motive is as important as the action. This is New Testament. This is where Jesus talks and says, you understand the fact that you can have people with evil motives who haven't yet committed the action who are in the same category as murderers. This is Matthew 5. It's a Sermon on the Mount. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew 5, beginning in verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be, able to, will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's preaching the Ten Commandments. He's preaching the Ten. Some people have said that Jesus is correcting Moses. Or he's improving on Moses. And he's saying, you've heard what Moses said. Now let me tell you what I say. That's not true. That is not what's happening here. Verses 17 and 18 argue that that is not what's happening here. Verse 17, Jesus said, Don't think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but fulfill them. Fulfill means obey fully. Verse 18 says, I'm not here to change the law. It's going to be fulfilled exactly. So what's he talking about in verse 21 when he says, here's what you've heard. He's talking about what they've heard from their preachers, from the Pharisees, from the scribes, from the Sadducees, from the leaders. Here's what the leaders have been teaching your fathers. Here's what they said. Here's what you've learned. Well, what have they learned? You shall not murder. Well, that sounds good. But notice the next phrase. The next phrase changes that slightly. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. You see the contrast in the next verse where Jesus repeats the word liable three times. Do you see the repetition of liable? But I say to you, and this is what Moses intended, this is what the commandment means. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable. Everyone who insults his brother will be liable. Everyone who says you fool will be liable. Judgment is based on the act of murder, but also on the motive for murder. See, what the Pharisees were doing is they were distorting the commandment against murder. <clears throat> they were narrowing the definition, thou shalt not murder, so that it said, thou shalt not murder. And if he dies, you are liable to judgment. They interpret that to mean, as long as he doesn't die. You know? Just keep them alive and you're okay. So you can do anything you want to do up to death. You can hate him. You can mistreat him. There were, fair, there were uh, religious leaders who talked about spitting at people in their, in their disdain for them. And they allowed all kinds of stuff. As long as the guy doesn't die, you can send him to the hospital. But pray he doesn't die. Then you're in trouble. Then you're liable. See the problem? So they're using Moses' commandments as an excuse to hate, to get angry. Now notice verse 20. Matthew 5.20 says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. See what he's saying? He's saying, your Pharisee leaders are leading you to hell. You follow your leaders and you are following them to hell. What you are learning from them is paving your way to hell. They're not going to heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, you won't enter either. So what are they doing? What they are doing is what you hear every day around you. What they are doing is classic worldly teaching. And they were teaching it as Moses said this. Look at what Jesus gives five or six illustrations here. Look at these illustrations. Uh, chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. 
The Pharisees are saying the command against murder gives you permission to hate. It was just a command not to kill the poor guy. And you can see the attitude of these leaders in John chapter 7, verse 49. In John 7, 49, the Jewish leaders made this statement. But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. This is their attitude toward people. These are their people. They are their leaders. And they say, this, these guys, this is riffraff. This is trash. That's their attitude. They are so big, so holy, they can mistreat people. So in that first commandment, thou shalt not murder, they take that and say, as long as he doesn't die, you're okay. Now look at the second one. This is chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Pharisees are teaching, the commandment against adultery gives permission to lust. As long as you don't commit adultery, you can do anything else that leads up to it. Just don't do the act. Jesus said the command against adultery is a command against pornography. It's a command against playing around. It's a command against lust. It's a command against any form of illicit relationship. It's a command to value the tremendous gift of sex and marriage which God gave us. You ever seen the way the world today destroys that command? We live in a culture that knows nothing of the value of sex and marriage. God created sex to be enjoyed in a locked down, committed relationship with one person of the opposite sex. And it's like no one today understands that all that other garbage ruins this wonderful gift of marriage. It's unbelievable, but we have a culture that is determined to ruin any possibility of our young people growing up to enjoy marriage. It can only be enjoyed one way. And that's the purpose of the commandment. To help you enjoy sex and marriage. God's way. And the Pharisees had destroyed the idea. Saying, ah, oh, yeah, you can do anything, just don't do the act. Thirdly, the commandment against swearing gives permission to lie. This is verses 30, 33 to 37. Verse 33, again, you've heard that it was said by those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. They taught that this command, this command gave permission to lie as long as you didn't swear by very much. You guard what you swear on. Familiar with that? I'll swear on a stack of Bibles. What's that mean? Does that mean everything you've said up to that now is a lie? And you're now going to say the truth? You know? Or we'll promise something, you know, kids promise something with their fingers crossed behind their back. What does that mean? See, all of that is attack, an attack on language. It's an attack on honesty and truth and trustfulness. Jesus said, when you say yes, make it yes. Don't make it, well, you know, maybe yes, possibly. Make yes, yes. Make no, no. Say what you mean and say it accurately. I think we were probably 10, 11, 12 when we learned that we could use language to cloud things. You know? Where are you going? Al. Who are you going with? Nobody. What are you going to do? Nothing. Why aren't you coming back? Well, I don't know. You know? So you're taking words, you're using words to fuzz 
things. You're using words to make everything cloudy. You know where that came from? That's satanic. Satan is the father of lies. He is the master cloud builder. Jesus said, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Number four. This is verse 38 to 32. They took the command for accurate retribution and made it a command to to pay back, to allow them to pay back. Verse 38 says, you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This was God's directive to government as to how to decide what level of judgment to make. And God said, if he's taken an eye, take his eye. If he's taken a tooth, take his tooth, you know. They had turned that into a payback system. You hurt me? I owe you one. You know? And I'll pay you interest. You ever seen that system? You ever been a part of that system? The IOU system. The payback system. Jesus says in verse 42... That is not the life of a Christian. Your life is to give. He came to earth to give everything, to give his life. Christians ought to be known as givers, not takers. It's a command to value the real privilege of making the right kind of action. This is where Paul's going in Romans chapter 12 when he says, Overcome evil with good. Good? I didn't know you could overcome evil with good. You overcome evil with guns. No, you overcome evil with good. There are certain kind of actions that are very convicting, that get into the heart, that get into the conscience, that wake people up to the fact that they're wrong. This is what Paul says in in Romans 12 there, in the previous verse. When he says, you treat your enemy right, and you will heap burning coals on his head. That's a good thing. You will burn good into his cranium by doing right actions. He's your enemy. You invite him to a meal. You feed him with the right attitude, and you make it a good meal. You make it at a good restaurant, an expensive restaurant. What's the value of that? It eliminates an enemy. You will say something to him that he's never seen before. He lives in the payback system. Everybody pays back. He knows he's going to get hit because he's your enemy. Good action. Can, over, can overcome evil. I'm sure you heard the story about the middle school in Oregon that was faced with a unique problem. <clears throat> a number of girls were beginning to use lipstick, and they would put it on in the bathroom at the school. That was fine, but after they put on their lipstick, they would press their lips to the mirror, leaving dozens of little lip prints on the mirror. They couldn't decide what to do because it took a little bit of work to get the lip prints off. So finally, the principal called the girls to the bathroom to meet with a maintenance man. And she explained how he was having a major problem cleaning mirrors every night. So she asked him to demonstrate how difficult it was to clean the mirrors. He took out a long-handled squeegee, dipped it into the toilet, and then scrubbed and scrubbed on the mirror. After that, no problem. No problem. Classic actions. Actions. You demonstrating your love for other people by giving what you've gotten out of a toilet or by giving your best. Do you love those who love you? Or do you expend your best? On enemies. We don't pay back. We give. 
And then number five, Jesus deals with number five in chapter five, verses 42 to 48, where he says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, the Old Testament, where does the love, the Old Testament say, hate your enemy? It says, love your neighbor. It says, love your neighbor. It says, love your enemy. It says, love the alien. It says, love the stranger. Where does it say, hate the enemy? It doesn't. That's what the Pharisees had added. They said, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. So let's define neighbor. And of course, they developed this whole attitude of let's define neighbor as narrow as we can. To give us maximum people that we can hate. You know? You remember the lawyer coming to Jesus? Luke chapter 10. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer says, so who is my neighbor? This is where he is. He's in, this, he's in this definition category. Let's define neighbor. Does neighbor include people within the block in which I live? How about their relatives? And you remember Jesus' answer. Jesus' answer is the, the story of the Good Samaritan. The man, the Jewish man, was in bad shape on the side of the road, couldn't move, was helpless. A Jewish rabbi comes by. Levite comes by. Doesn't help him. Jewish priest comes by. Their jobs are to help their people. Doesn't help them. Samaritan comes by. Enemy. If this man had been capable, he would have spit at that guy. What does he do? He not only helps him, he gives him everything he's got. He fixes him up. He takes him up to the inn. He fixes him up at the inn and says to the innkeeper, here's my credit card. If he needs anything else, take care of it. And then Jesus says to the lawyer, which one of these three made himself a neighbor? See, neighborness is not a requirement. Neighborness is an opportunity. Love your neighbors. So do you see what's happening here? The Pharisees are taking these Ten Commandments and are distorting these Ten Commandments so that they give permission to do wrong in the name of a commandment. So we're back to the first one. Thou shalt not murder. The Pharisees had said, don't murder. Don't murder means you can hate. Don't murder is a commandment against hate, against anger. How often this week have you gotten mad? How often have you broken the sixth commandment? How often have you lost your temper? And said, well, I, I know I shouldn't get mad, but I declare they are the most irritating people in the world. You're justifying it. You're doing what the Pharisees did. You're trying to say the commandment does not include me because I have good reason to break it. That commandment says that the response of anger is a response of murder. A disparaging attitude that looks down on people and calls them names is a response of murder. The word raka here is an Aramaic term that means something like, you are a worthless son of a motherless donkey. You know, it's this attitude. Idiot. Moron. Retarded. It's that kind of attitude. You're saying the world would be a better place without you. That's the same attitude as a, mur as a murderer who thinks he's done society a favor by eliminating an extraneous person. You know, I wondered as I was working on this message, how many of us, apart from the grace of God, would be in prison for murder? I admit 
I confess that as a young person, I was so angry at times that I wanted to kill my brother. And the only thing that kept me was the grace of God. The only thing that kept me from killing him was the fact that I couldn't. You know, he was stronger than me. (laughs) Which is the grace of God. I went to court with a friend one time in Leesburg who was charged with attempted murder. And the judge said to him these words. He said, the only reason you're not going to prison is because you're a lousy aim with a knife. And you missed his heart by an inch. Everything else was there to put you in prison. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you get angry, you hate, and you have all the necessary equipment of a murderer. It's just the act. In the eyes of God, hatred And this attitude toward people that does not respect life and doesn't realize the tremendous gift of life. It's the attitude of a murderer. John says in his first epistle, 1 John 2.9, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Chapter 3, verse 15, he says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Your hatred for your brother or your sister or someone else, your hatred may be an indication that you do not know Jesus Christ. You may think you're okay because you go to a good church. You may think you're okay because you haven't killed anybody. But you hate? John said, you better really check to see. You hate your brother. You do not have life, eternal life in you. What's the solution? The solution back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 The solution is to deal with the hate. Deal with the problem. Verse 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Do not let unreconciled relationships continue. Do whatever you can do to resolve it. It's more important to do that than to make an offering to God. Did you put money today in the offering plate? You may have wasted it. If you got something against somebody, you'd be better off going and straightening it out. Right now. Straightening out that relationship, dealing with that hate, dealing with that attitude, dealing with that bitterness is more important than singing songs and acting pious and giving money and sweet and smiling sweetly. So can murderers be forgiven? That's number five. I'm saying murderers can be forgiving, forgiven. It's interesting to me that God used to deliver this commandment a man who was convicted, not convicted, but a man who murdered. Moses had murdered an Egyptian. And King David had arranged for Uriah the Hittite to be killed. And Paul stood by giving approval while Stephen was stoned to death illegally. Can a murderer be saved? Can the stain be removed? Can guilty hands be washed clean? An amazing verse for murderers and those who hate and those who are angry is 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Does that include abortion? Yes. 
Does that include murder with a gun or an axe? Yes. Does that include hatred and anger and bitterness? Yes. Does that include the kind of stuff that you and I have done and said? Yes. Is there any sin the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cleanse? No. All means all. Every sin is covered by his blood. There's only one thing that's left. You've got to want it. You've got to admit what you've done. You can't hide it. You can't ignore it. You can't just keep going and saying, well, I'll get better. You've got to say, I am in that category. I am in the category of murder. I've got the attitude. I've got the motivation. And you've got to turn to the one who paid the price for that sin. You've got to turn to Jesus Christ. And by faith, ask him to pay for that sin. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to rescue you. Because that's the answer. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. When we come to him. Have you done that? He awaits our response. He invites you to come to him. And I invite you to do that today. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege to realize that you in this word spoken thousands of years ago are speaking to us, are speaking to every person throughout the ages. Life is valuable. Would you today renew our appreciation for what you've given us, renew our appreciation for you? We've sung, open my eyes, that I might see Jesus. May we today in a new way see the glory of Jesus. Thank you. In his name, amen.